Maria Wilson. And I'm Danielle Mandikian. And we are scientists. We love science. Yeah, we do. So when we aren't doing it, the next best thing is to talk about science. And what's really awesome is that we're surrounded by some of the most brilliant minds in research. So there is always someone interesting to talk to. But there's never much time just to chat at work. That's why we are so excited to be hosting this podcast. We're going to step away from the labs today to talk to other scientists about the cool stuff they are thinking about, working on, and imagining. As well as how some of these discoveries just might lead to new medicines. So grab your favorite drink, get ready to unlock your science brain, and join us for Two Scientists Walk Into a Bar. The show for scientists, science geeks, and the people who love them. Hi, everybody. So we're back again to expand a little bit more about inclusivity in research. So you'll remember well, last time we talked with Mark McCarthy about human genetics. And we touched there on how being inclusive with the populations that we look at for human genetics is super important for that research. And so today we're going to expand a little bit more on inclusivity in the clinical trial setting as well. So as a quick primer or refresher for clinical trials, um, when we're developing new medicines, we move things through development in stages. We start with um, small trials to look at the safety of a molecule, um, either in healthy people or sometimes in people suffering from the diseases. And then we expand to a smaller study that potentially helps us understand whether the drug works or not um, to get a an early, early signal. And then, then finally, we move it into what's called pivotal trials, which is the clinical trials that we send to the FDA to get the molecule approved. Um, and over, the, over, over time, we're building up the number of patients who have been treated with the drug so that we understand both its safety and its efficacy. So I'm here today with two great friends and experts in inclusive research, Nicole Ritchie and Jen Pangalinen. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the bar. Hi, thank you for having us. Great to see you. Great to see you, Maria. So let's get right into it. Health inequity is really being increasingly recognized as a major problem. What do you see of some of the factors that drive these different disease outcomes? It's very, very clear for people in a way that's no longer undeniable. Just how um, people experience disease um, can just be very, very different. And there's such disparities, not just in the United States, but globally. And so it's really interesting when you reflect on what drives outcome. And there are certainly social factors, um, and actually social factors comprise the majority of um, one's health outcome. And then there's biologic factors, and like genetics, which is defined by your genes, and your um, usually a geographic origin. And there are five ancestral um, buckets, essentially, where genetic ancestry, East Asian, South Asian, um, uh, European, African, and then what's called admixed American, which is, is kind of the Latin American populations. So those are separate, but sometimes related to race and ethnicity. Similarly, um, gender and women, uh, the term female, sex versus gender, um, gender being a, a social construct in the same way um, as race and ethnicity, whereas sex is more of a biologic construct like genetic ancestry as it's determined by your X, Y, and XX chromosomes. So it's, it's um, a foundation of how we might consider some of these factors, but the social factors are really multifaceted and complex. So Jen, how do these complex elements show up in clinical trial data? 
I can speak to uh, some of the clinical studies that we've done in lupus and asthma as an example. We have done studies in lupus where we have patients in Latin America, the different countries in Latin America, and notice that their um, disease outcome, um, or you know, from our uh, investigational medicine, they responded differently than the patients that we had in the United States. Similarly, for asthma, we'd included diversity of patients, including Asian, and it was interesting to note that the U.S. Asian patient population versus uh, Asian patient that we enrolled in Asia Pacific responded differently, both from an effectiveness and safety. And so we know in that um, you know setting in this clinical data that there are differences, uh, and 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 primarily because of where they live, geographically. But there's still a lot more for us to interrogate and understand why um, uh, those are happening. Interesting. So Nicole, then, in terms of designing clinical trials, how do you start to think about these differences and, and which ones to take into account? It kind of just speaks to the purposeful need to have kind of what, define what you're trying to achieve. It's not just um, heterogeneity for the sake of heterogeneity. Um, certainly there's an, a component of just having representative patient populations in studies that's pretty logically based and sound, but then there's this real element of, um, of trying to tease out what are the underlying factors that are driving those differences in outcome. And the likelihood is that they're probably going to be multifactorial and um, we can draw and delineate some specific examples where there is a driver mutation or um, uh, that's prevalent in certain populations that can really result in different outcomes. Um, but you mentioned asthma, Jen, and I think that's a really, really good example of probably both an environmental component, but also a really well understood genetic element that um, can result in not just um, response differences, but differences in overall disease course outcome. Um, and there are factors even, um, if you look at the science of um, the social elements, there's this whole field of social epigenetics, which is, you know, changes to our genome that happen as a result of our environment um, that can be um, related to uh, things like trauma or uh, just environmental um, inhalants, um, but that actually hit us at the level of our DNA which is pretty amazing. And this is, I'm gonna dig in, this is down at the level of the actual chromatin, right? Like which genes are closed down and opened up is dependent upon all sorts of factors in the environment uh, that we don't understand yet. But, it, but it, can, it could potentially explain why somebody with similar genetic heritage responds differently to a disease state or a drug depending on where in the world they live. Which, I mean, you think about it, it starts to become mind-bogglingly complex, right? We can't just focus on somebody's genetics or just where they live or just their environment. Well, and this is where I think our, the, the moment we're in is very important, right? Because we're at this intersection of technology and science where we can understand things at the microbiome, at the epigenome level. Um, there are things that were possible now um, uh, that, you know, we dreamt about when I was doing my PhD. I mean, this is all seems almost sci-fi. Um, but so we have so much opportunity. Uh, we can actually distinguish, you know, now identical twins at the level um, that we wouldn't be able, we wouldn't have uh, the opportunity to have done so in the past. So there's a, a lot of great science to be uncovered. Um, but what we do know is that the majority of the available clinical and genomic information is homogeneous and it's based on a single ancestral population. So because that is the current state, 
at the very minimum, we know we have to broaden the focus on um, greater patient populations um, so that we can start to um, enrich the science. And this is where, you know, genome-wide association studies, again, a, a technology that has grown, um, have been shown to be actually inaccurate um, based on the homogeneity of a population in translating what's called polygenic risk scores um, and their utility to other populations, and that's dangerous. Um, we've also learned that if you take a genomic um, genome-wide association study and you do a very specific focused population, um, you will see things you wouldn't otherwise see because of the dilution effect, right? If that is just such a small proportionality of the overall data available. So I think we know on, even at the level of scientific discovery and what we think about is even early, early research, we have to have greater um, diversity in our, in our clinical and our genomic data available to us as scientists so that we can actually start to uh, even create the right avenues um, at the heart of drug development. Hi, Maria. Hi, Wellington. Hi, Maria. Hi, Stephanie. So Mark, in our last episode, said that polygenic risk scores were powerful tools. Nicole here is saying they're dangerous. What's up? Well, I think they're saying the same thing because powerful things can be dangerous. Um, remember, he said they are powerful, but that if you use the tool in the wrong population, this could lead to you making wrong decisions or having imprecise or incorrect data. And Nicole is starting there. You have to be careful taking data that was generated in one homogeneous population and then extrapolating those learnings to a different population. So that's why that's where we need to be able to have polygenic risk scores that have been generated from a much broader population. I'm reminded, actually, I worked for a while um, in uh, studies of Japan, Japanese people in diabetes, right? So diabetes is a phenotype, right? You, you're unable to manage your blood sugar, but the underlying biology of that is very, very complicated, and there's lots and lots of work has been done on genetics around diabetes. And it's different between the Japanese population and other populations, and you can even see that. Like, Japan is classically a society that doesn't really suffer from the obesity that other societies do, but yet they have very high rates of diabetes despite that. So the, the diabetes in the Japanese population is clearly not obesity-driven in the way it is in other populations. And so that, that in itself, I think, was just super, super interesting. Um, do we, can you think of any other examples? So there's several GWAS studies um, that, that have been done in different populations. So I know there's one in colorectal and Alzheimer's that both revealed differences in populations that were otherwise not seen when they were done in specific cohorts. Um, and I'm also just reminded as we think about um, where we observe differences based on you know, potentially a genetic component versus a um, social component. And you can look at um, gender and sex in this way. So there was a study, it was a retrospective study in diabetes actually, in diabetes related outcomes in men and women. And they deployed different types of support mechanisms um, to manage their care. And women but not men had outcomes that were um, significantly different and improved if they had a personal care plan versus a generic care plan. 
So that is a gender association. Um, but an, an example of a sex difference that we've observed is digoxin, a drug that, you know, basically has differences in outcome, but it was studied in a, women were included in the original studies, um, but it, they were included four to one. Um, and so the, the dilution of the effect was not seen until the drug had been on market for upwards of a decade. And so then you see there's differences in actually how they respond and their safety and efficacy profiles are different. So um, it just goes to show that both of the sides of the proverbial you know, social and biologic coin are so important. Um, and those are just you know, overt examples. I'm sure there are many at the intersections as well. These examples are, are almost serendipitous, right? That digoxin is a, an old medicine, right? It's been around for a long, long time. And it, you're saying it wasn't until it had been used in hundreds and hundreds, thousands and thousands of people that they were able to say, oh, you know, had we studied more women in the first place, we may have realized that it worked differently. Hey Maria, sorry to interrupt, but I wanted to back up a little bit here. Nicole mentioned social epigenetics. So epigenetics, of course, is the study of kind of physical changes to the DNA and how the DNA is read. I sometimes think of epigenetics as the changes on your DNA as opposed to in your DNA, like DNA sequence. But social epigenetics is a newer concept. Can we explore that a little bit? Yeah, so epigenetics, I think one way I like to think about it is, so you can have a, a gene that's, um, you know, I, you and I could have the same variant of it, but due to our environments um, or things that have happened, you might have a modification that's turned it off a little bit, and I might have one that's turning it up a little bit. So even though at the level of the genome, the sequence is the same, epigenetically it's being regulated differently perhaps in different people. So that's what epigenetics means. And the things that can trigger these modifications of the DNA that change expression are vast, right? And your social circumstances, your level of stress, your level of pollutants are things that can contribute to epigenetic differences. So I think that's what we're talking about when we're talking about social factors that um, influence epigenetics. I think one of the challenges is I'm getting, get, getting back to when we're doing smaller early studies to really find out whether a drug works, you're caught in this bind where you, you want um, to be able to run a small enough study that it's not ridiculously expensive on both money and also patients, right? Because it's an experimental drug. You don't actually know whether the people who've signed up for the trial are going to get a benefit for it in the early stages. Phase three, you kind of you kind of do. You've already got some pretty good data that says this drug is going to work. Um, but, but early phases, you're really looking for that efficacy. And if the efficacy is something not like survival, not like Nicole was talking about, but if you're measuring a change in a biomarker, like early stages, you might look at a change in Cholesterol, right, is an example, or a change in uh, inflammatory biomarkers, and you're looking for that to tell you, yes, no, I'm going to keep this moving. Well, what you don't really want is such a broad range of people that that measurement has a really wide variability in it, because the more variable it is, the harder it is to see a change. How can we, how can we get around that? There's purposeful ways to think about. So a lot of what we assume will control, will control for variability, we don't really know it does, we've just always assumed that it did. So it comes back to assumptions, right? So scientists make assumptions sometimes too, we just think it has better data behind it. Um, but I think that, that we have a real opportunity now too because there's more data available and with the availability of data, you can start to dissect, um, does, you know, does it really matter? So we can try to be as protective and, um, 
and controlled as possible, which does make sense. Um, but we have to check our logic because sometimes what we assume um, should be, you know, exclusionary or that will contribute to variability is just an assumption based on the decade before that we put that in the protocols and just continued it without actually asking the question again. And this has become a really, I think, um, hot topic for regulators as well in thinking about um, comorbidities and what we have assumed, again, um, will cause variability within a study. But there's the this tension also between having patients available and actually our obligation to a research environment that actually completes itself. So to not have, a, many studies don't complete, right, because they can't enroll, There's that's a prevalent challenge. And that is actually really undermines the whole premise of, of clinical um, science and development. So it's also an obligation to be able to appreciate that there's a tension between wanting to be um, uh, control for variability, but also allow access for patients to enroll. And I know there was um, a lung, uh, I think it was uh, in non-small cell lung, real-world data analysis that basically did a retrospective to see, you know, one, if um, if they would have taken out basically most of the inclusion-exclusion criteria, would it have changed the outcome? And it didn't. All it did was give them way more patients to be available to them, and actually more diversity, um, both in age and in race. So I think there, there's data now to say that we should question our assumptions. That's so interesting. Just real-world data analysis, what is that? Um, yeah, so this would be, um, we have just all of this information that is gathered in what is uh, now electronic medical records, used to be the charts, right? Um, so if anyone was working in industry and um, prior, you would used to get handed this big chart of information, now it's all in the computer. So the electronic medical records are all a lot more networked and connected now too. So there are these um, options um, to be able to actually look at data and the intersection in the intersection of, um, of data and outcomes in a different way. So you can kind of look at, you know, what used to be um, in a very controlled prospective clinical research environment versus, you know, um, tens of thousands of patients in a retrospective kind of data cohort um, from real world environments in the clinics. Um, and pulling that information, of course, in an anonymized way to be able to create new understandings or um, appreciations of how drugs work or how patients respond or how patients access treatment um, that I think can really help us um, think about um, clinical development in a different way. Yeah, and in doing so, right, that'll help our um, to design our protocols. So if we hadn't enrolled the patients in our clinical studies, we have that real-world data to say, well, you know, this lab parameter or this inclusion exclusion, what does it really um, look like in real world settings so that we aren't inadvertently um, excluding uh, these patient population. And so I think it'll, you know, come for a better protocol design. I wanted to pull out a little bit more this idea that we study the healthiest sick people in our clinical trials. And I think what you're getting at is inclusion and exclusion criteria for trials. That's something that's very familiar to anyone who works in the field, but if you could let people know a little bit more what that is. So when we start a clinical trial, we design a protocol 
and that's what you had mentioned about the inclusion exclusion. Um, when we're trying to do the studies, we're trying to figure out, you know, the best, the right patients, right drug and right dose, for example. And so we have some eligibility, like which patients will benefit the most. And so that's some of the exclusion. But then we also exclude patients that may not benefit or may have uh, side effects um, that we're thinking about. And so these are the different parameters for, you know, targeting which patient we should include in our clinical trials. And I think some of the issues um, that we're facing right now in, you know, in clinical studies are some might be too restrictive. Um, Again, looking at you know the early phase um, clinical studies, we, we want to make sure that it's safe. We don't have any clinical data at this point in the early stage um, in our experimental medicine, and so um, this is one area that we could be you know expanding and thinking about um, how can we make it a little bit more heterogeneous. Um, Nicole mentioned about you know diseases where. Um, there are differences in, in racial, ethnicity, or maybe age um, and sex uh, differences. And so it's important that we do heterogeneous, um, you know, patient population, but then balancing um, who's going to serve the medicine better and then who, which patients um, will not, you know, uh, benefit from that. So it's important to, uh, yeah, have a very targeted inclusion-exclusion in our protocols. Yeah, one of the things the exclusion um, criteria drive as well is how easy or how quickly you can enroll your cl clinical trial. Um, because, you know, one of the challenges of clinical development is getting enough of the right people at the right time into the studies. Um, this is the sort of nuts and bolts of doing the work. And if you have your exclusion criteria are too, too complicated, you, you, you know, interview and, and talk to lots and lots of patients, but none of them become eligible for your trial. But then the, the, um, the, the other side of that is if you have these open too wide, the worry is, is that the patients are so different from each other that in a smaller type of a study, you might miss an important signal, right? So for me, that's always the, the, real, the really difficult thing to overcome. Yeah, certainly. And conceptually, right, you, it's still when you're in an investigative setting, you want to be as targeted as possible and as mindful of safety events as possible. And so often we're trying to have um, clear signals um, and be very responsible in how we shepherd um, uh, medicines through patient populations so that they actually, once they can become approved, we can learn um, a little bit more um, in the broader populace, but that we're very mindful in who um, who's included in those studies really for the protection of their safety. But that being said, if you extend that thinking into its most extreme levels, you get to where we started, I would say, um, um, in the 70s when women were excluded from clinical studies because there were concerns that they um, were there were complicating factors and differences between men, but also uh, there was concern around pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And so instead of having kind of a targeted or um, strategic approach, just all women were excluded from clinical research. And we're still feeling the effects of that decades later and, and still trying to make up for a lot of what we didn't understand. And um, there were some really negative repercussions from what came from that. So if you extend the logic too far, you can see that you get into a space that is no longer logical and actually undermines um, our ability to understand how, how drugs can work and, and the patients that will get them. Yeah. No, I think that's a great point. It was, I believe it was 1993 was when um, the FDA required that women were actually um, in all clinical trials, which is relatively recently, right? Um, 
And I think when you're, you're thinking now, some of the other groups, um, for example, age, right, we tend to have just a sort of age cutoff without perhaps recognizing that people are living longer and longer, right, as well. Any other examples of things that are currently just sort of exclusion criteria that we should perhaps think about changing? I think the age range, as you mentioned, I mean, thinking about, you know, we are currently in the pandemic and um, looking at the different age groups, um, but also not just sort of the safety and eff efficacy, but also, as I mentioned, the dose. I know some of the conversation uh, that we're having, you know, last year during, you know, for the uh, COVID vaccination is, you know, how much dose would we give, you know, five to 12 years old versus now, you know, five and below. So um, uh, the gender, the sex, age group, ethnic background. And then, you know, one thing also that, you know, research um, and, and science has progressed is genetic mutations. Um, so in addition to the different demographics that I mentioned, we're learning a lot more that um, in certain gen uh, genetic mutations like EGFR, that's higher in East Asian patient population as an example. And then KRAS, there's been a lot of um, uh, research now that that's more common in European ancestry. And so if we learn these new things um, from our drug discovery and scientific discovery, then perhaps we could be developing um, new medicines for these patient populations. I think that EGFR story is really interesting, right? And if I understand it correctly, it was observed in a clinical trial that a certain group of patients seem to have a better response to the drug to the other, because that's one of the things we always do. We, 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 we do a study and then we'll cut in and look at the data and see, oh, is, how does, this, does the signal associate with any particular quality of the, of, the, of the patients in the trial? And this was both women and East Asians were found to have a stronger response and that associated with a particular variant in a gene, right? Which is just so interesting, right? Absolutely. And it just makes, you, makes me think, well, thank goodness we had women and people from East Asia in that study, yes. right? Otherwise we may never have uncovered that really interesting biology. And I think that to me is the big, the big concern of the lack of diversity in clinical research is, is the things that you just don't know that you don't know because you've never looked, right? Absolutely, Maria. And I would say, like, I just wanted to emphasize what you just said there. If we didn't generate those data, if we didn't enroll those patient population, we wouldn't know. Um, you know, one example, again, like breast cancer. Black women die three times, are likely to die three times uh, than white women. And that's through data information from the clinical setting that we learn that information. So we, if we don't include uh, patient population in, in different groups, uh, we won't generate data. We won't know um, these insights. So that's absolutely critical that all everybody, you know, every patient's data is included. Yeah, we have this huge, rich diversity of biology across the planet, right? And while Yes, I think you can say that most human beings are somewhat similar to each other and a lot of fundamental biology is basically the same between individuals, but then there's all these little differences that are so, so important. So I wanted to ask you, uh, switch um, tacks a little bit and ask, about, and ask a little bit about why. Why um, do we not have good representation currently in our trials because if you look across the board I think there's definitely a move towards this but if you pulled any clinical trial out of the literature and looked at its demographics it probably doesn't match the demographics of the disease right and why is that do you think Nicole? 
Yeah, so I think this is a certainly a conversation of, um, of great interest right now. And I think there's a lot of information on why it is. Um, and I think it's different depending on if you're talking about a global audience or a you know, more US focused audience. But um, the, the example of, um, of lung cancer and, and understanding how differences in mutation and signal can be picked up different, differently based on a population is really interesting. So as we think about um, our late stage studies and um, regulators and what they want to see. Um, a lot of the reason we had even um, the opportunity to include East Asian patients in a lung cancer study was because of the China FDA requiring we do so. So I think one of the reasons that we have a limited um, subsection of racial and ethnic diversity in our clinical research is not because it's um, exclusion, it's not an exclusionary topic, but um, there's also not active inclusion. And so in the U.S. that's usually um, a product of an incredibly multifaceted and decades-long problem within health, health inequities and access to care. But um, there's also uh, a really purposeful need for um, health literacy and education around what clinical research is and different communities and how um, also our physicians and our um, our clinical trialists are able to reach out to patients without assuming they may not be willing or able to participate based on some other kind of assumption that's probably underlying, which it could be socioeconomic, um, or it could be based on some really relevant historic context within our country where we've seen just atrocities in um, a Tuskegee experiment or the Henrietta Lacks story I think most are familiar with that are incredibly valid and we also have very rigid regulations now to prevent those kind of atrocities from occurring. But we have to have um, a cultural competency to be able to understand the context and how we might present research as an option to patients um, so that they might consider it as an option. We actually, um, there's some really compelling data that really, that shows that all patients, regardless of race or, or ethnicity, are equally willing to participate in clinical research if they're given information. It's just they're, they're not as likely to be asked. Yeah. So a lot of this is assumptions and assumptions that happen at the at many different levels in healthcare that we have to start dissecting. Where do you think we're going in the scientific community and the clinical research community with all of the information? Like, what's if, what's your dream for what clinical studies will look like in five to ten years? Yeah, I have to say, I think over the past couple years, um, there's just now a lot more. In imperative in, in doing um, increasing diversity in our clinical studies. I think in the scientific community, um, the industry, pharmaceutical industry, patient advocacy, clinics, hospitals, um, and the FDA are all talking about why this makes sense, both societal but also from a scientific discovery. So I think, you know, the whole ecosystem is recognizing the need for um, increasing, you know, diversity in our clinical studies. So I'm very optimistic. Um, there's a lot more champions and, and um, uh, individuals that are, are, are passionate about this. And I would have to say that the patients are also, they want a seat at the table. They're speaking out. Um, they want to participate. They want to be asked. And uh, I, I'm, I'm really excited where all the different stakeholders are coming together. 
Do you think too, John, I'm just wondering from the, the COVID-19, the pandemic and how we learned, I mean, kind of to leverage be telehealth the technologies in new ways. Do you think that's really going to be where, you know, there's a lot of opportunity that we have probably from. There's definitely excitement. I think that there's that silver lining from the pandemic is the accelerating these sort of concept, what we call decentralized studies. We talked about some of the barriers might be financial or just um, where you live and you don't have access to that hospital. And I think the pandemic has certainly amplified uh, the need for the industry to make clinical trials more accessible. You mentioned the telehealth, you know, how we collect data, um, where patients could go, uh, that's definitely been accelerated. And so again, really optimistic and yeah, the pandemic has certainly um, accelerated that. What do you, do you think, Nicole, the other drivers might be to get us to this future state? Um. I think we have a really amazing opportunity right now because of where we are with um, having greater data sources and um, understanding um, um, disease in a different way. And as we think about more personalized treatments, um, there's a real opportunity to, um, and I would say need and necessity even to have um, greater data diversity. Um, we know that, you know, from a big data vantage, the algorithms that are built to um, make decisions or inform clinical care, um, there are very good examples of those being, you know, fundamentally flawed um, and disadvantaging patients um, of different racial groups. Um, and if we're not mindful um, we're, in our attempt to kind of create more personalized care, we could create the next era of health inequities um, and solidify the health inequities that are so prevalent already in the country and the United States. So um, I think our opportunity and obligation right now is to, um, is to call attention to the need to have greater diversity in research, diversity in data, understanding of different patient populations, and really even quality checks of um, all of the new technologies that will be available to maybe make patients um, experience easier, but that we have to consider you know, um, how they'll be used and if they'll be accessible for all patients. Uh, I think technology is a huge, you know, could be a huge equalizer in a lot of ways um, if we're very mindful in how we deploy it. Thank you both so much for coming to talk to us today. This was really, really a fascinating conversation. Really appreciate you both sharing your experience and, and your, um, your views on this topic with us. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much, Maria. Yes. Thank you so much. Maria, awesome episode. We didn't want to interrupt too much, but we did have some other questions. What was the twins about? So twins are the perfect experiment for understanding the impact of genetics versus the environment, right? So you can look at, for example, twins who are raised in the same household, right? And so you've got two twins who are raised together and maybe they both end up with diabetes or they both end up with Alzheimer's disease, but you don't know whether that was their environment of that family or their genetics. And so the most powerful studies is where you have twins raised apart. And you look at, then you can look at statistically the contribution of the genetics versus the environment. So if you have twins who are raised in completely separate backgrounds, but they end up with very, very similar diseases, or even I don't, you know, you'll see people, even they end up with the same job, right? Things that you may not necessarily associate with genes, but you can start to do all of these very interesting studies with these very rare populations of twins who are raised in separate environments.
Yeah, that's really interesting. So I had a question about different types of study, clinical trials. We've talked a lot about diversity and needing to be inclusive and represent the appropriate patient populations. How do we think about where we set the cutoffs? If you're trying to incorporate, include every person who, who needs to be in the trial, these could get really big. Yeah, I think we, we generally, the sizes of clinical trials are determined by the effect size that you want to look at, and then statistically, how many people do you need to put in the trial to see an effect size of X? You know, what, what reduction, you know, if you want to see a 10% reduction in death or so for, for cancer, then you need, your statisticians will work together about how many patients do we, if we expect this effect size, how many patients do we need to have in the trial to show this in a statistically meaningful way. And you will only get your drug approved if you've shown it in a statistically meaningful way. If you start looking at subgroups, um, then that changes the statistical power of the analysis. So yes, so if you want to have on your label for your drug that this has been statistically proven to work in this specific patient population, you need to have powered the studies to demonstrate that. So I think it may well end up with, um, in clinical development teams, having to do a lot more digging into exactly how you want to um, enroll and power your studies to make sure that you're maximizing the benefit of the drug to the patients. I, I really love, Maria, how you guys are starting to tackle larger issues along with um, scientific questions. And I think my question to you, when are, when are we going to start to see this outside of science, outside of theoretical research? Yeah, I agree. How long is this going to take? What, what information do we need? So I think we're already seeing it. If you went into the literature now, you will find lots of publications on looking at genetic risk scores in much more diverse populations than we have done in the past. And what excites me about this is we will start to get new science new drug targets, as we call them, from all of this genetic information that is currently being generated. So I think really, certainly within our lifetimes and the lifetimes of our children, we will have so much richer understanding of human genetic diversity and how it relates to disease. I have every confidence in that. Wow, thanks, Maria. I think diversity in research is one of the most exciting topics that we have covered. I agree, Wellington. It, these discussions are, are really interesting, and it kind of raises the question of where do we go from here? Yeah, I, I think it really is so very important and interesting. When you think about the two episodes that we have done, talking about the genetics with Mark, and then the applying um, a more diverse principles to clinical research, just now with, with Nicole and Jen, um, what I see is that the, the genetics, as we get more and more genetic information from more and more diverse populations, this is going to help us both understand disease biology better in, in different populations and give us more drug targets, more ideas about how to treat diseases, um, and then also help us understand how to, how to do clinical research in a more effective manner to be more targeted towards different populations and also potentially to develop treatments for diseases that have been historically overlooked because they affect more um, underrepresented populations as well. So I think we're on the cusp of really seeing a lot of very positive change in this space. And myself, I think this is one of the most important areas of research in science and medicine today. 
And that's our show. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss a show and leave us a rating. If you have any questions, please write to us at podcast at gene.com. That's G-E-N-E dot com. And now for me, it's back to puzzling over data. Puzzling over data.